gospel reading for this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 uh, through 40. Let's see if I can find it. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the, spirit, in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples. Be a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in age and years having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him and to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Well, uh, missed you all. Um, last week, uh, wasn't able to be here with you, but I did make it in time for Christmas, because there are how many days? Right? One for each tribe that was redeemed by the birth, the life, the death and ultimately the resurrection of our Lord. So merry ninth day of Christmas to you. I guess they should have nine ladies dancing behind me. Is that the, during this, all the single ladies? Actually, I, I learned, I learned very recently, there's going to be, I, there is a gift that I think that you all could give to Pastor Jeff um, that might be highest on his list, but a close second, a close second, if you're still looking for a gift for him, is from the discography of Beyonce. So um, if, you, if you really want to make Pastor Jeff happy, get him, get him something from that. But um, this is the ninth day of Christmas. We have these 12 days to be able to meditate on the birth of our Lord of Christ. And then next week, we'll move to the adult baptism of Jesus. And so being able to contemplate this part of this season, it's a season of celebration, of joy, of receiving this fulfilled promise of God sending his son. But the history of the church has also taken this moment when Mary and Joseph come with the baby Jesus into the temple as a, as a meditation, as a moment of us kind of 
considering their obedience, right? Couldn't have been planned better this morning with the Wesley Covenant service. And as I was reflecting on um, covenantal obedience, uh, thinking about this passage about the service this week, I was drawn back to a time uh, when I was at Point Loma, um, now some years ago. My final year there, we all had actually, I mean, almost all the students, if you're a part of Point Loma and you go through, you have to take a Christian tradition or history of the church class. And so all of us, you know, being 20, 21, 22 years old there, thinking we knew everything, uh, we, we had discovered through this particular class that it wasn't just the last 50 years that people had thought, how can I live, you know, in this devoted way to be a disciple of Christ, but that it had actually been over the course of the whole history of the church. Um, and so having encountered some of those different ways that people had done so, there was a 6th century uh, Christian named Benedict, Benedict of Nursia, um, we had all encountered, and, and the 10 of us guys wanted to live together and try to follow uh, some of what he ended up creating. It was uh, a rule or a regula uh, of life, a rhythm of life that was centered on weaving the scripture into every moment of your life. In some ways, he was trying to live out what Paul counsels us, which is to be giving thanks in all things, to be rejoicing always, praying without ceasing. And so the 10 of us undertook this. The, um, the university at that point allowed us. We had 10 guys in two different apartments. And I remember at the beginning of the year, we were handed, it was this book, which is The Rule of St. Benedict, and uh, another book that would eventually, this was the book I was given uh, in 2008 there. I didn't know what it was then. Uh, it's the Book of Common Prayer. And using these two things, we, 10 of us, tried to live out as best as we could what we understood to be obedience to his rule. Um, again, being 20, 21, 22, there were uh, some funny things that we did. I remember our uh, initiation hazing. We ended up going on a really hot day. I think it was, you know, kind of in August or something. We went and Mission Gorge is this area down there where you can do hiking. And we went and we hiked up kind of uh, a mountain there. It was on an extremely hot day. I just remember how hot it was. We were all out of water. We come back down from this long hike, and one of the guys has this idea as a bonding experience that we all climbed into this car together. I don't know how we all fit in there, but we had all the windows rolled up and the heat on. We were already out of water. I was in a semi-conscious state the entire way back. It was maybe a slightly mystical experience. We also read in the Rule of St. Benedict, um, they would undertake these bread fasts, you know, as a way, again, of, of penitence. So we decided it would be a good idea if we did the same thing. Um, and we went on for like a week or so. Just, I think all we had was water and bread while we were trying to, I remember us trying to do finals. So somehow, for some reason, we had linked it all up with this and write papers. We had read in, and again, there's a logic to this, I think, in the medieval period that all the monks would sleep together in one room, so we disassembled all of our, um, our bunk beds because we had the tools, I guess, to do it, and we put them all in one room, and we all slept in one room for the year, um, kind of stacked on top of each other. We, they will do something called night vigils in here, and so again, we thought we would get up in the middle of the night to, to be in prayer um, we'd all try to, because there's this idea of it, like a shared common life, we'd all ride around Point Loma like we were a bicycle gang. Um, 
But within all the silliness that I feel like we kind of undertook in trying to follow this rule, um, we also on the mornings uh, would gather. Remember, it was brutal for some of the guys at 7 in the morning to be able to pray together. Everybody was supposed to go to that. Um, we had this whole rhythm of uh, cooking together. It's, there was a rotation. If you were one of the guys, you were either up with the person who was the head or the assistant um, that we would do every week. Um, we had this series of service projects. And so one of the major ones that we did, I remember we would go down to Young Hall, and before the janitors came in the morning, we would empty the trash. Because there's, in the rule of St. Benedict, he talks about the 12 steps of humility is a really important part of this. And so trying to serve those who serve us. And then I remember we'd have on Tuesday nights when we would oftentimes do these meals together, um, we would invite people uh, to come be guest speakers uh, and speak to us about communal living, etc. Um, somehow within us trying to follow this rule, in both the silliness, but also in trying to genuinely and sincerely follow the, the practice of incorporating prayer, scripture, into the rhythm of our daily lives. I think I had conversations, moments with those other nine guys that I just, up to that point in time, had never had space in my life. That even if I had all the freedom, theoretically, in the world, all the resources to have an encounter in that moment, there was one in particular when we had those Tuesday nights and guest speakers, one of our um, advisors for this group, he was a professor at Point Loma and he was also an ordained um, pastor. So he came over on um, one of those nights and we were going to have communion. And I can just still remember we sat around in this circle and he was consecrating the elements and we had worked out, he wanted us to serve one another uh, as we were going around the circle that we were sitting in. And when we were serving one another, he also taught us this old Christian hymn. Uh, I remember, I think it might have even been in Latin. I remember the translation of it was, Lord, give us peace. But it had these different parts to it. It was very simple. Um, but all of us singing it together, sometimes as those songs can be, it was beautiful. And it was just being there in that moment, um, being able to partake in, in the elements of the Lord's blood, his body. Um, it was something that, it, it was just an immense grace um, and profoundly sensed the presence of the Lord in our midst. And there was just something about somehow, I, like I said, I feel like that encapsulates so well to me that year of my life, that somehow within being obedient to as best as we could this rule, this practice, this rhythm, um, it just gave us opportunities that I never otherwise would have been able to see the presence of God in our midst. And I think for me, I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience in your life, if you kind of had a moment where you were maybe, maybe you weren't a Christian and then became a Christian and it reordered the rhythms of your life. Or maybe you were at the surface of the church, you'd kind of always been present and then you actually saw that there was all this depth to it that you never had before. Um, or maybe it wasn't even that. Maybe it's just you kind of had some circumstances change in your life and you had this new diet you had to follow uh, or you had turned into this new season or field of work um, or those, uh, how can I call the, the, those wonderful new rules that God sends into our life in children? If you ever become a parent, the way that they'll reorder your life. But sometimes obedience to those small things in our lives, it opens up avenues and pathways, again, to experience God in our presence in our midst in ways that we just couldn't 
otherwise. And in some sense in our gospel passage for that this morning, that's precisely what's going on. That is, Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus to do everything that's required by the law. Here is this moment, this miracle of being able to behold the very Son of God come among us. I couldn't help but, as I was also reflecting on this text, think of all those small, little, obedient ways that not only is Mary and Joseph, or they're following the laws, but the very people of God have been faithful, have been obedient uh, throughout generations and generations that culminates here in this moment. You all obviously remember the moment in which Adam and Eve's disobedience gets them expelled from the Garden of Eden. And then we pick up with Abraham, the very father of faith, and we see in those halting ways sometimes, in which God is calling him to be faithful, to be obedient, to believe his promise, and then sometimes he backtracks. But when you get to Genesis 22, and he has the child of promise, and again, what you have to hear in the background with this and with Jesus is that after Adam and Eve's disobedience, there is kind of these powers that Paul mentions, the powers of sin and death, that kind of stand over and between us and God. And when you look at the ancient world, and this is kind of all what's in the background, again, as we're hearing this passage, that everything, even the gods themselves in the ancient world, have to make a covenant, they have to make a pact with death. Everywhere in the Old Testament, you'll find the practice of child sacrifice. Why? Because you're going to have to make a deal with death if you want to get something or get somewhere. You're going to have to give up what's most precious to you. And the question is, you get to Genesis 22, after... Abraham has wrestled so much with obedience and being faithful and obedient to God is precisely this question. Is the God who has called Abraham now into faith also going to have to make a covenant and a pact with death in order to ratify this powerful promise of securing his posterity throughout all generations? And as he gets to the top of Mount Moriah, we see that Abraham here has been perfected, that while in the beginning in chapters 16, sometimes 17, he's in this wrestling of doubt of whether or not God will be faithful. Here he perfectly surrenders himself, and through the miracle of that, that long, that patient, that slow obedience, we now get to see that this God is a God who triumphs even over death, who annuls that covenant and that pact with death, who's going to be more powerful. I couldn't help but think of Moses when you get to the God kings of Egypt, who now try to use death, actually, as a means to control God's people. And his parents, who, in that same sense of hopeful obedience, surrender Moses' life, he sends down the, the, the Nile River to Pharaoh's daughter. And the wonderful thing that God will do here, that he'll raise up Moses through Pharaoh's daughter to be an obedient prince of Egypt, to then rescue the people of Israel and take them out of the house of slavery and into the promised land, but also this, because death stands not only over us, but also in us. And God doesn't ordain just to destroy Egypt, but to try to undo the sin that's within them, so that one day Egypt too, with all the other nations, will be able to come and join Israel in worshiping the one true God. He says that he's doing this not just for Moses and for Israel, but also so that Pharaoh may see and know that there is the true God. I couldn't help but also think of the birth of Samson. When the angel of the Lord comes and visits and said, this child is to be a child who's set apart. A child who's consecrated to the Lord. And how will that be known? By two simple acts of obedience. A razor shall not touch his hair, 
and he shall not drink strong drink. And as long as Samson in his life and his parents are obedient to precisely those two small things, we see that this fierce and this fiery, the way the same unpredictable spirit that hovers over the face of the earth falls on Samson and all the forces of evil and all the enemies of God's people cannot withstand him in his life as long as he is obedient to those two small things, finally. As they think of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus coming into the temple, I couldn't help but think of Hannah. And the story that you have of her praying day in and day out, again and again, in infertility and not having any child, praying that the Lord would give and open her womb so that she might be able to bring forth a child. And then miraculously, on that child, and don't miss this, she has a child and she does what? She brings him to the temple to dedicate. As Pastor Jeff has insisted time and time again, the Garden of Eden wasn't just a garden. It was on top of a mountain. It itself was laid out like the tabernacle, like the temple. And so as Hannah brings her child Samuel into the temple, back into the sacred space where God is, you see God in this gracious sweeping ark as he annuls the covenant with death, both without us and within us, brings forth and pours his spirit back out upon his people, brings Samuel back into the temple that he's doing this thing where he's redrawing all of creation up through it. His people especially so that he can do what? So he can use his people, now drawn back into the temple to be a conduit through which he will send his son and save not just his people, but all of creation from end to end. That's what we're experiencing here in this moment as Mary and Joseph and Jesus come into the temple. Simeon kind of has a special place for me. There's just two things I kind of want to note that I, I really feel like about Simeon and about this passage that strike me every time I read it. And the first is this, that it could be the case. As Simeon here is living in the Spirit, as he's filled with the Spirit, that he just happens to be in the right place at the right time with the right people and the right Spirit, and he encounters the Christ child. But I think for me, as I feel the weight of all those scriptures that go into all this, as I look at those figures of Abraham and Sarah, of Moses, of Miriam, of Manoah and his wife, of Hannah, where I see Simeon doing is, is that he's probably exactly the sort of person who day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out, is faithfully searching ever since he's heard that prophecy, since he's heard the Spirit speak to him, they'd see the Christ looking fervently and diligently. What wouldn't surprise me is if Simeon there was often finding himself in the courts of the Lord and as people were bringing children in to dedicate them, constantly taking those children, gathering them up in their arms, and maybe it's not this exact prayer of blessing that he gives, but nevertheless blessing those children again and again, preparing for that final moment when he actually would encounter the Messiah. Which then, of course, leads me to the second thing that I find so remarkable about Simeon here in this small, this patient obedience that he has in waiting for the Messiah to come. Where is he looking for the Messiah? Where do we often, where does our society or our culture look for the Messiah? Maybe at Washington, D.C., maybe in Silicon Valley. 
Maybe somebody who has the resume, the accomplishments, the party platform, the policies. Maybe somebody who tests well with all the demographics. Maybe while all of our society would be looking there to find the Messiah, to find the person who could save and fix our culture, Simeon is here looking amongst Peter and Timothy, Miriam and Emmaus, gathering up those children because he knows that God comes in these unsurprising, these small ways. He knows that the future that God holds for us is there in those spaces. Somehow, in the humble faithfulness of Mary and Joseph to come and present Jesus in the temple and the humble faithfulness of Simeon, God here is gathering all these earthly elements, all these simple things. And through God's divine faithfulness and that long arc of obedience, allowing them to, be, to become and allowing us to behold the miracle of God among us, come to deliver us and lead us to freedom. So I hope that you can see with this why we would have a covenant service this morning. It's not because we believe in some sort of vain repetition of ritual or that because we believe we're going to somehow have more scripture in the service or do more good deeds, that that's what's going to save us or sanctify us. Scriptures are full of times where you can be at once a, a hypocrite believing in the wrong sorts of things to save you, trusting in them. But as you look at Mary and Joseph here, as you behold their faithfulness, we also don't want to miss that it's in those simple daily rhythms of them worshiping, of them traveling, of family, of births, of being able to serve God and one another in which we can see God come among us if we pray to have the eyes to do so. So in our worship this morning, we make ratify this covenant to be able to follow Christ, to reclaim our time, our effort, our energy for God. We make it, as Pastor Jeff said, already in a spirit of total freedom, knowing that God is the one who alone will be able to save us in the end, that he is the one who has brought us here this morning and made us co-heirs with Christ. And while this covenant that we made this morning has no power to save us, we offer it along with ourselves up to God and trust that God will make us partakers of his life. So I think the question that it leaves us then with this morning, and maybe the question I'd want you to ask the Holy Spirit is to reveal to you in what way this covenant can find a small, a simple expression in your life. We don't longer have our lives led by the rhythms of purification or ritual sacrifice. But we do still have those rhythms of gathering together in worship. As Pastor Jeff has noted here this, with the arrival this evening of the shelter of being able to serve the poor, the lost, the alone, the broken. We still do have it in these moments, as you'll see in the bulletin, of joining into the various ministries of the church, of being able to study the scripture, to pray together. What way or in what small thing might God be asking you this year to perhaps deepen your faith or be renewed or refreshed in it? I was reminded recently, uh, I loved, somebody said it in a way that I guess it stuck with me, that love is an illusion until it's attached to a commitment. 
And that love is incomplete until we hold fast to that commitment. And that for us, maybe especially in the church, it's not just what we say yes to, but the one to whom we're saying yes. Um, So maybe that's what I'd have you reflect on, is you'll be invited to come up here to the table. As our Lord makes himself faithful, has made himself obedient, to be offered here again and again so that we might have life, how can you likewise respond in that same spirit of obedience and faith with your life? And maybe this, that if you do make a commitment, you would be more than welcome to take one of those comment cards, drop it in the, um, yes, the box at the back of the church there. Uh, and feel free to always uh, make a commitment and want to see it through. Tell either the person that's to your right or to your left or one of your pastors, and we would be happy uh, to encourage, to strengthen you um, in, in that journey and that faithfulness. So uh, shall, we, shall we pray together as we prepare our hearts and our minds to come to the table? Lord our God, thankful this morning. Thankful for the gift of just being able to meditate on the birth of your son and all those ways in which you used, you redeemed, even our sometimes half-hearted obedience, our um, hot and coldness, our willingness to follow and then stubbornness and refusal to do so, that you continue in your unrelenting faithfulness to use this broken world to be a conduit and a means through which you've sent your son and through which you are drawing us up into your everlasting life. We ask, Lord, now to be able to meditate fully on this gift, this mystery of your love and of your goodness. Bring us to this table in a spirit of hope and of love and of faith and allow us, Lord, to respond um, in likeness, offering up our lives in both great ways and small ways to you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.